on, right? Good, thank you. Um, so before I get started, just to make sure everybody got this paper of generations from Adam to Noah, right? So if you don't have the paper, it's going to be kind of hard to follow me. So um, I tried to figure out a way that I could talk through this, but it's just too messy. So that's why I made these. And so uh, if you have those and follow along, that'll be helpful. So um, thanks. So while Nathan, my son, was going through chemo and his bone marrow transplant, I started to be interested in reading books and watching movies about extreme mountain climbing. There's been a couple of movies out. They've actually been you know, fairly interesting. It was intriguing because as these mountain climbers seem to be able to conquer normal fears, um, you know, it, was, it was just exciting to me. And I learned many things about the record high peaks, such as they're mostly all in a region between the borders of Pakistan, India, Tibet, and Nepal. So uh, just to give you, an, you know, some, some reference to this, so Mount Washington is 6,288 feet high. So and you know, if you've been up to Mount Washington, you know, that's you know, kind of high, right? If you walked around there, right, sometimes you get winded. The base camp for Mount Everest is 17,598 feet high. So that's three times. That's the base camp. So what, what people normally do is they go to the base camp, they get acclimated there because obviously there's less oxygen, and then they go up from there. So K2, uh, which is one of the high peaks there, is 28,000 feet, 500 and, and are 251 uh, feet high. Mount Everest is 2929, almost 30,000 feet up in the air. So when you're up, now again, you know, you think of Mount Washington as being high, but these are five times higher. So when you fall, it's five times worse. So, and most of the people, it, it, and there's, there's really excellent climbers, right? So the difficulties the climbers must endure is incredible. It's beyond a normal person's comprehension. Many experienced climbers die, as even a minor mistake can cause death. And often death is caused by the environment, such as in uh, April 25th, 2015, there was a, an earthquake in Nepal. Um, it killed everybody in the base camp, because when you have avalanches coming down and boulders and stuff, everybody was gone, right? So. Um, it, it's really a dangerous thing, and, it, and but it's interesting. But understanding rock climbing or reading about the lives of some well-known climbing celebrities didn't help me to be able to handle unknown situations and stress, and that's where we come to Enoch today. So the scripture reading that I'm going to be going over is Genesis 5, 21 through 30. No, I'm sorry, Genesis 5, 21 through 24. Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. After he begat Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God 
and he was not, for God took him. So before we get into talking about Enoch, we have to uh, kind of understand some of the things that were happening at the time because the culture and things that were happening pre-flood is very different than what happens today. So that's where this paper comes in handy. And yours is black and white, sorry. Um, maybe you can't see everything. Um, but these talks about the generations from Adam to Noah. And basically, if you start at year zero, being when Adam was born or created, till when the flood happened, that was 1,656 years. And we get that again from the Bible and looking at the genealogies and things like that. That's how we can trace it out. So, and if you look at the first person, so Adam was obviously the first person, and he lived 930 years. So Seth was his son. Remember, Abel died, right? And Cain was apostate. So he had another son to be in the line of, of, of Jesus. And Seth was born at year 130 of Adam. Enosh was then Seth's son, and he was born at 105 of Seth and 235 of Adam. So Adam lived 930 years, Seth lived 912 years, Enosh lived 905 years, Canaan lived 910 years, you know, and on and on. Now, oh, oh, Jared lived 962 years, but Enoch only lived 365 years, right? What happened? Um, and then Methuselah, which is the person that lives the longest in this genealogy, he lived 969 years. So people lived a long time, right? That's what we kind of get from this genealogy. And if you look at the genealogy, there was only seven generations between Adam and Enoch. So seven generations. So you're thinking, wow, there's not too many people when Enoch is around, right? But what we learn from Josephus is actually a, a little bit different. Adam and Eve, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that they had 56 children. It doesn't mention that in the Bible, but that's, and again, um, he, Josephus is a Jewish historian who was alive at Jesus' time, right? So that's the best that we can do uh, at the time. And he also said that Lemek, now not the Lemek that's on this chart, but the Lemek that's under Cain, because Lemek had two wives, remember? Um, so he had 77 children. So people had lots of kids. So, and so currently right now, the population is expanding, doubling about every 60 years. We're thinking at that time, the population, because people were living so long, having lots more children, uh, that the population was actually doubling every 20 to 30 years. So actually, if I put some calculations in and do those calculations about this, um, you know, how, how, how long it takes to, to double, um, we can figure out that around Methuselah, maybe there was 150,000 people, so which is quite a few, right? It's more than the seven that has on this chart, right? Um, and the other thing that we find out is if we take that same increase and apply it to when the flood occurs, there's five to seven billion people on the planet. So, um, you know, even though it's just 1,600 years, that, we think, is between 5 to 7 billion, which is basically the population that we have on the Earth right now. And actually, some people think that it was higher. 
But, you know, this was also according to John MacArthur, and so that's kind of good enough for me. Um, so anyway, we find out that there's lots and lots of people there, right? Um, but when it, we talk, when we read this verse here, um, it said that he walked with God. And if you read the other, the whole, uh, all the verses in chapter 5, he was basically the only person that walked with God other than Noah, which comes later in chapter 6. So there's only two people in this recording that walk with God. So, which is kind of outstanding. You're going, wow, okay. So there's two people that walk with God, and there's 150,000 people. Wow, okay. And then if you also look at uh, uh, Genesis 4.26, we find out that uh, after Enosh was born to Seth, then men became to call on the name of the Lord. So there was this general obliviousness to God during that time, kind of what's happening today. Um, and then if you look further in chapter 6, in fact, let's read Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Then God saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and that every intent of their thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So notice he used the word wicked there. So um, that's kind of the first time that it's used. And wicked is the same word that's used um, for the people at the time of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. So remember when the angels came down, they wanted to find out what was happening, um, right? They visited um, that, that city of Sodom, and the, the men at the time wanted to have sexual relations with the angels, and God called them wicked. So wickedness is not just a normal kind of obliviousness to God, right? It's kind of a, a next step. In fact, wickedness is used for, like I said, people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it, it, it has a mental disregard for justice, righteousness, truth, honor, and virtue. There's a sense of depravity and even criminality. Pride and vanity lead to wickedness, twisting evil for good, darkness for light. There's a sense of continual, day and night, intentional, every imagination. That's kind of the sense of wickedness. Um, so I was trying to think about wickedness and, you know, just what that meant. And, you know, do we have wicked people in the world today? Um, and I was, you know, thinking about some things because, again, this is, this is sin that is unprecedented. And if you think about it, so God made man in his image to follow him, right? So God wanted, he gave us intellect, he gave us being able to dream, conceive, think about things, the iPhone, cars, right, the wheel, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And people take that knowledge, they twist it, they go 180 degrees, and they do everything that God wants them not to do. So they go in the completely 180-degree direction from God, right? That's kind of the sense of wickedness. And I ran across the story of a guy named Sean Wittenberg. And I don't know if you guys have ever dealt with people who were con artists. Con artists are truly wicked people. <laughs> because 
what they do is they take everything that you, 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 you build a trust in, right? So in a card artist scenario, you, they, they have some kind of a trust relationship, right? Or maybe it's a romantic relationship, right? Um, so they'll, they'll connect with somebody, and you think if you're in the sphere of this con artist that everything is great, right? They know the right people, right? Things are happening, you're making lots of money, you know, things are going well. Everything is really progressing. At, but if you're outside of their realm, things just don't work the same. So you kind of want to stay in the realm of this con artist because things are just happening. Think of Bernie Madoff, right, where people invested lots of money into this Ponzi scheme thinking that they were going to get all kinds of more money back, right? So, and, and there's been a few of them in my life, and they're really intriguing, and you get caught up, you get swept up. So in, in this, uh, so Sean Rotenberg, he's actually still living, he lives today, he's in Toronto, and they, had a, they have a recent article I was reading on uh, Toronto Life about him. So there was uh, one woman, so he was the normal guy, so in, the, in the, his early life, he discovered that a well-placed lie could make him sound and feel more important than he was. He took that and he ran with it. So there was one woman, I mean, he had lots of Ponzi schemes, he got thrown in jail a couple of times, he was in jail three years, but you know, after he got out of jail, he decided to do some online dating scam stuff. So he would connect with lonely divorced women. This one woman gave him $600,000 to invest, because he was, this investor guy, right? And she was going to marry him, right? So she gave him the money. He was going to invest it. He was going to make lots of more, more money. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've gone out like in the morning and you see that huge spider web, right? Especially like this time of year, right? It's really intricate and there's all these threads and everything that's really intricate. Every thread, everything that that, that spider web is meant to trap somebody. That's kind of the life of a con artist. Every friend, every relationship, everything that he ever learned, it's all about creating another con. So he conned this woman. She gave him all the money. Obviously, he spent it all. I don't know how you could spend that much money that quickly. He spent it all, and he cast her aside, and he went on to the next victim, right? She was destroyed, right? She was, she was having panic attacks. She asked, you know, she was calling suicide. She wanted to kill herself. She lost everything. She trusted this person. She was going to marry him. And then he stole everything and cast her aside. That's kind of the level of wickedness that, you know, I'm talking about. Every intent, because they're always thinking about, oh, if this person says that, I got to say this. You know, they're always thinking in their mind and scheming. At the, so he, he got thrown in jail. He's in court right now. But he's already planning, because of COVID-19 and it's Canada, you know, he's, he's looking to get out, um, and he's not, probably not going to go to jail, and he's already planning his next series of, of, of fake things based on COVID-19. So that's kind of the level of wickedness and depravity, even though that involves a person, you know, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. So let's look at the life of Enoch. Um, so again, if we look at... Genesis 6, 20, uh, 21 through um, 21. So we find that Enoch had the father of Jared, and he was born, if you look on this, you know, he was born in the year 622, and he became the father of Methuselah. And Methuselah lived to 969 years old. 
So there's basically, if you looked at the chart, there's two people. If you look at Adam and Methuselah, you can go all the way from the beginning of time to the flood with two people. And that's kind of important. So it talks about, in this verse, um, you know, in Genesis, it talked about the fact that Enoch walked with God. So after he begot Methuselah, Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and he had sons and daughters. So something happened with the birth of Methuselah that caused his conversion. Um, so Methuselah actually means it be sent. So he named his son it be sent. And then later he learned, he talks about judgment. So there was something that was going to be sent, and the idea is when Methuselah dies, it was going to be sent. And if you notice, Methuselah lived till the flood. So there was judgment coming at the end of Methuselah's life, and it doesn't, they don't know about it then. This, flood, this, this judgment was going to be devastating. So it talked about the fact, again, like I said, that then Enoch walked with God two times, so, and that he did it for 300 years. So what's the meaning of walking with God? What does it mean to, to, to do that? So let's turn to Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 6. Now again, Keith read these, but we're just going to go over them real quick again. By faith, Enoch was taken from his life, so he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if we look at that passage, we look at verse uh, 5, talking about, he, he pleased God. So instead of walking with God, he pleased God. So there's some connection there. Um, now, if we think about New Testament verses, like Galatians 5.16, where it says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Or Galatians 5.25, If we live in the Spirit, we shall also walk in the Spirit, there's a sense in the New Testament that they're talking about walking in the Spirit. But in the Old Testament, they're talking about walking with God, right? So what's the connection? Well, if God is a trinity, right? He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? There's a sense that the Holy Spirit is God. So if you're walking in the Spirit, you're actually walking with God. And if you're walking in the Spirit and you're walking with God, there's a sense that you've got to be pleasing God. So, you know, these are all kind of synonymous verses and kind of help to get us an understanding of what it means. So also, let's look at uh, Hebrews eleven six now. So it says that, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So there's two things here. Number one, he believed that God exists. Now, how did he do that? Did he turn to Genesis 1-1, where it said that in the beginning God created the world? No, because Moses read, wrote Genesis. Wow, how did he do that? Did he, did, you know, how did he know what the gospel was? Well, 
you look at the chart, you'll notice that Adam was alive during when Enoch was living, right? You could talk to him, right? You didn't need to read the book. You went to the book source, right? You went to Adam, and you talked to Adam, and Adam could explain what happened before the fall, right? what it was like. I mean, he was there, right? A- Adam and, and Eve both, right? Sorry. Adam and Eve both, right? They could, they could talk about that. Um, so, and he could also go to Seth, right? In fact, he could go to Enish. I mean, there's lots of patriarchs that he could have went to and talked to and asked what the gospel meant. So he didn't need to read the Bible because he had the source. So that's one way, because again, it doesn't tell us. It just says that when his son was born, there was a conversion experience. But there was, you know, things that kind of happened before that. So that's what we can kind of piece together. Um, And then God drew Enoch to faith through Methuselah's birth. Again, it wasn't Enoch came to God on his own, right? God drew him to him. Um, and before, the, before he had faith, before he could re- have real faith, there had to be a true conversion. If you have a true conversion, you need to believe in a sacrifice. So if you go back to what uh, was talked about before with Keith, right? Abel had faith. What did he have faith in? That his sacrifice pleased God, right? Because he gave an animal sacrifice. Unlike Cain, that had fruit. And he gave fruit to God, and God said, you know, I don't like this. I want, I want an animal sacrifice. And he basically said, I got lots of fruit. You, you better like fruit, because that's what I got. So, you know, there was that difference between Cain and Abel, right? So Cain gave a perfect sacrifice, and he was reconciled because of that. So there had to be some reconciliation that happened here um, as far as a sin sacrifice, repentance, you know, those kinds of things for for true faith to really take off. So, and then I want you to, real, to look at also verse 6 where it says um, in, in the last segment, so he has to believe in him, but he also must ha- believes that he exists and he, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You know, I believe that God's going to reward me. Right, yeah. I mean, if you go to people, does God reward you? Yeah, he gave me a new car, right? You know, whatever. So, but the, the idea here isn't that. It's more of a judge. God is our judge, right? And as a judge, he will hold us all accountable. So everything we say, everything we do, everything we, however we act, however those people that we've transgressed, all that will be accountable someday. And we're going to see that was a very real thing for, for, um, for Enoch. And that leads me to my next thing. Faith leads to action. So let's look at Jude. We're going to look at Jude, verse 14 through 15. So remember, Jude only has one chapter. So there's no Jude 2, just Jude 1. Jude 1, 14 through 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them for all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in ungodly ways and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
wow, it's not really, uh, it's not a friendly message, right? Uh, <laughs> it's a little harsh. I would probably say that Enoch, I mean, uh, that, yeah, that Enoch probably didn't have too many friends saying that. Um, so let's look at those verses. So first, the, 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 in, you know, in verse 14, it says, Now Enoch, the second from Adam, prophesied about these men. Who is he talking about, about these men? So remember Jude. Jude was going to write an epistle um, to commend us and to encourage us on our faith. So he changed that because there were so many false prophets in the time. And instead, he wrote um, an epistle that talked about false prophets and what happens to them and what happens when you follow them. So these men that he's talking about on en for Enoch are uh, false prophets. So Enoch had false prophets at his time too, right? I mean, that's what we learned from the verse. So these men were referring to the false prophets that were happening in Enoch's time. So Enoch was also prophesying against these false prophets. So, and notice it also says, God comes with 10,000 of his saints. So when it says saints in that word, it does not mean us that have been redeemed. It means his angels. Because we don't judge people, right? The holy angels actually commit judgment, God's judgment. So it's not up to me to do judgment. It's up to his holy angels. So he sees a time when God is coming with 10,000 of his holy angels. That's not the flood. So that is actually, you know, talked about in Genesis, I mean, in Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming in his glory with all his holy angels, and he's going to separate people, right? You know, those on my right, those on my left, right? He separates them based on your belief in himself. So again, the idea here is that Enoch just didn't pray, you know, he actually had action. And that action was to make sure that he preached the gospel message that God was going to come and judge the world, so you better do something now. Um, so the interesting thing is, and I don't know about you, but, you know, when it says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints, I don't remember that being anywhere in the Old Testament. I mean, there's only five chapters, right? So it didn't talk about this being in the Old Testament. Um, it is in a book. This is contained in a book. It's in 1 Enoch 1.9. Now, you can't turn there in your Bible because there is no such thing as 1 Enoch in our Bibles. That's a called a pseudepigrapha book. So a pseudepigrapha book, um, so that this particular book of Enoch was actually written, they think around 330 B.C. or so by some Jewish people who had a lot of common things that they wanted to write down and they wanted to make them seem important so people would read them, right? So, like, if you're going to open a bank, right, you don't call it the first bank of Keith, right? You call it the first bank of, you know, the United States or something, right? So, just like these people, they couldn't call it the book of John, right, or not the book of Frank or something. They call it the book of Enoch because you go, oh, Enoch wrote this. I got to read this, right? So, so it, this is actually a true statement. Now, you know, and, and that's why God puts it in here, because it was, again, it was common knowledge at the time. So it was common knowledge at the time. Everybody, a lot of Jewish people read the book of Enoch. And so this was a common thing that they knew about. Notice he uses the word, again, ungodly four times in this. Um, it's a very hard statement. 
you know, again, it's not seeker-friendly. Um, it's very harsh. In fact, I would probably say that Enoch was not a popular man for his time. I, just a thought. You know, it doesn't talk about in the Bible. But I would probably th- say that if you saw, if you were living at that time and you saw Enoch walking down the street, you would either attack him or you would walk the other way because you didn't want him talking to you and talking about judgment and all because that's way too, way too messy. So, but the idea here is the fact that, that God can't tolerate sin, right? So if we're walking with God, God cannot tolerate sin. It's not like uh, we can accept Jesus, have the same behavior that we had before we were converted, and have a true conversion, right? There's, there needs to be some kind of a separation from that. So, again, let's look at, if go back to Hebrews 5 again, just real quick. And you don't have to turn there, I can just read it. It said, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life, so he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. Wow. So he was translated into heaven instantly. Pretty cool, right? Um, And you notice it said he could not be found. So there's only two people in the Bible that actually get translated into heaven, right? Now, technically, you could say, well, but what about those people that Jesus brought back to life? They died, right? All those people that got resurrected, they eventually died. But there's only two people in the whole Bible, outside of Jesus, he's not really, you know, he's a separate thing, right? Um, There's only two people, Enoch and Elijah. So remember when Elijah got taken up, I don't know if you remember the story, but Elisha was told that if he stopped seeing Elijah go up to heaven, if he lost him going up to heaven and he didn't see him, that he wouldn't get the benefits and the, 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 the opportunities and the power that Elijah had. So Elisha was fixated on seeing Elijah. And so wherever Elijah went, remember, Elisha was right there watching him, right? Watching him, watching him, just in case, you know, he didn't want to close his eyes too long because he wanted to see that. Um, so Elisha actually saw Elijah being translated up into heaven, right? But this is different. Nobody saw him. So you're thinking, wow, what was so special about Enoch, right? Why would he just be, I mean, there's two people. Why, why was it Enoch, right? Uh, why couldn't it be some other people? Well, number one, you know, he was the first person that said to have walked with God, and he walked with God for 300 years. So, I mean, we think it's great, right, when I follow God for, wow, I've been following God now for a couple months. You know, I'm doing really well, right? So he walked with God for 300 years. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling, right, um, to think about it. So, but there's some other things that God could have done, I mean, if you think about it, to get him to heaven, right? He could have just fallen asleep, right, and when he was asleep, he died, right? I mean, that could have happened, right, if God wanted to take him, right, God, I mean, there's a lot of Christians, right, that that's what happens, right? When you fall asleep, you know, you, you, know, you go peacefully, and then you're in the presence of God. Um, God could have done that. So why didn't he do that? Well, if you think about the culture of the time, again, Enoch was 365 years old. Now, everybody knew Enoch, I, I guarantee you. Everybody, now, maybe not the whole 150,000, right, okay? But a lot of people knew who Enoch was. If Enoch just died a regular death, right, they're going, wow, Enoch was a regular, he was really a godly man, but he only lived a third of my time. Hmm. 
why do I want to be a Christian? So, Because being a godly man means you die sooner, right? And, and uh, the other thing was, what, what did he do wrong, right? Did he, did he sin or something like that? Is that why he died so soon? So God had to do something different, right? He had to make him an example. And that's why he translated. That's why I believe he was translated because Enoch was our example that godly people don't see death. That's a powerful example, right? And he's, I mean, that's, that's right there in black and white, right? He was translated into heaven. He did not see death, and he was a godly man. So Enoch is definitely an enigma, enigma in Jewish history, and he was definitely a very special person. But if you notice, if you look at the verse again, uh, you notice that Enoch was taken, so if you look at this chart, right, the flood happens in 1656, um, but Enoch uh, is translated into heaven 600 years before the flood. So Enoch didn't see the flood. Hmm. So it's kind of a pre-judgment rapture, I would say, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what I'm getting from this. In fact, you could actually say it was a pre-trib rapture. So personally, I believe that Enoch is a good example for us for pre-tribulational rapture because he was, he was taken away. He loved God. He was God's chosen person, but yet he was taken away, and he was an example because I guarantee you that the people at that time when he left, they were going, wow, God took him. Wow, what does that mean for my life? You know, people had to be kind of shaken up and kind of fearful because that, again, you know, it doesn't happen, right? Um, so let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, okay, so here we have the, the reference to there's going to be a rapture, right? There's going to be people who die that know the Lord and they're taken up first and then the people who are alive are also taken up at the same time, right? So there's going to be some deliverance from whatever is happening at the world at that time. That's what we're told. So let's review real quick or let's t look at this because, uh, you know, we've looked at the culture. We looked at the example of Enoch. So what does this really mean for us? What's the application? So again, talking about the culture at the time, the culture at the time was overwhelming secular and they didn't follow god right at the culture of the time in fact they were wicked um the culture today is kind of transitioning to that so we're rapidly going from being a somewhat tolerant christian uh, tolerant nation around christian principles to being anti-god in fact to proposing anything that god says yes and doing the opposite of Atheism happens to be the fastest growing religion today. Now, they call it the religion of nuns, right? That's what it's called now. Um, so that means you don't believe in anything. And you can say, well, that really isn't a religion. It is a religion because you don't believe in anything, and it's actually a worldview. So religion and worldview are kind of synonymous. So your worldview is you don't believe in that there's God. So let's take our, uh, our illustrious uh, governor, Cuomo. 
Um, he was talking about the reduction of people contracting the coronavirus. And he recently stated, now he's talking about the number of people having coronavirus. The number is down because we brought that number down, he told reporters. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. Cuomo, a professing Catholic, continued, that's how it works. It's just math. So we can actually do things better than God. I mean, that's kind of his message, right? Didn't need God, right? We stepped in with technology and those things. We did something better than God. So we don't need to, in fact, we can do something better because we can change culture to where culture is actually better than that horrible Bible that you guys have in your, in your hand. We can change that and make things better. So let, let's think about how, how, how that happens. So God says the marriage is between a man and a woman. So our culture says now that same-sex marriage is normative and you can actually even marry yourself. So, you know, if you can't find a partner, you can find, you can marry yourself, legally, legally marry yourself. Um, God said that he created a male and female. Our culture says that your gender can be different than your birth, right? So you can be born a man and decide that you're really a woman and get a change, or you can be a woman to decide you wanted to be a man, or you can be a boy in high school and you decide you want to run in all the girls' sports, right, because it's easier that way and you can get medals and things like that. In fact, transgenderism actually goes even further and says that our gender is fluid. You can change your gender at any time based on what you think. So, you know, I wake up, I feel more like a woman than a man, and so I can change my gender, or I'm none, or I'm both, or I'm, you know, all of the above, or whatever. You know, you can, you can do that, right? I mean, that's what our culture says. In fact, if I say the wrong pronoun to people at work, I get canceled. I can get fired. It's happening, right? Somebody called the wrong person a he, and he meant to be called a she, and the person got fired. So, because it was insensitive. Um, so, the, again, the Bible talks about the marriage can be between one man and one woman. What does our culture say? Our culture, and now we haven't come to this yet, but they're, they're, they're getting there. They're saying that polyamory is accepted because polyamory is just an extension of polygamy. So, I mean, we got, you know, the, the, the Mormon guy on, on TV, right? He's a polygamist. And he looks great, right? He's got lots of houses. He's got lots of wives. Things are working out for him. He's a successful person. So polygamy must be okay. If polygamy is okay, why can't we just multiply it and call it group marriage? So we'll call it polyamory. So instead of having, you know, your son having one parent, they have multiple parents. You can split between them. Wow, this sounds like a great thing, right? We'll have multiple parents. And because it, you know, it, it all takes a village to raise our kids now, right? So... Um, but is the, are these things really acceptable in, in, in God's kingdom? No, they're not acceptable in God's kingdom. In fact, that's why the Bible is under persecution now, right? It's because it says one thing and the culture is saying something else. Um, because this stuff is all, all these ideas are a concept of what is philosophers call postmodernism. So postmodernism says that there's no absolutes, that you can change the truth, any truth, at any time, and it's kind of a deconstructive 
philosophy, where you deconstruct things into very simple things and you change them. And then we're moving into an age where we call metamodernism. And metamodernism is when you take those reconstructed parts and you put them back together, but they're in a different order. So it's kind of like, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those big DJs, right, that are, you know, because what they do is they sample a bunch of different music, right? Some new music, some old music, some music they created. They put it all together and they create something new. That's what metamodernism is. That's what our society is moving towards. They want to change everything because the old ways are just definitely not working. Um, so as our culture tries to make this world a heaven on earth, a utopia, the world is moving into an age of wickedness and degradation. Uh, you know, I mean, you can kind of see it. As Christians, we look forward to the true heaven that is completely unlike this world and where God rules all. So let's quickly summarize what we've been talking about here. So, you know, we talked about Enoch being an example to us, uh, an example for walking with God. So we talked about the fact that in order to walk with God, you have to believe in God and believe in God's full truth, right? Not believe in uh, God is just an idea. He's that old man, you know, up in the sky kind of a thing, right? You have to believe in the fullness of God. You have to be reconciled with God, right, through repentance, through atonement, through, through changing your ways. Um, you have to have faith in God and his promises. You have to be like-minded with God, right? You can't walk with God if you're walking in a different way than God is, right? Because God's not going to walk with you. Um, so in order to do that, you've got to read his word. Um, and we learned, too, that followers of God are marked by God consciousness, right? They, they, they do this all the time, right? It's not like I have my five-minute or hour devotion, check that box off, and now I can go do what I want, right? So it's a God consciousness. God's thinking changes our minds, and it changes our actions, and it changes how we deal with people. Um, so why am I, you know, why are we even doing this? Um, you know, why can't we follow God and follow culture at the same time? Again, because we're going to have to give an account to God, each one of us, individually, with no help from somebody else, individually. Um, life is temporary, right? We learned that in uh, James 4.14, where it talks about, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes away. So, you know, a lot of us remember September 11th, right? It's a very kind of key time, right? You might remember when you heard about it, right? And in fact, sometimes, you know, it kind of seems like yesterday, right? And, you know, some, you know, you might see an image on TV or something, right? And you kind of like flip back to, but that was 20 years ago, right? Life is truly a vapor. It goes really fast once you're living life. So kind of in summary, our hope is not in political movements, it's not in social movements, not in social justice, it's not in politicians or anything in this world. Our hope is in the Lord. And just what happened to Enoch, we look forward to God rescuing all believers before the final judgment of, his, of the world. So the only way, so I, I've kind of wrestled this with this a lot and because it's, it's kind of something that I've wanted to do for myself to understand. The only way really to be secure, to be at peace, to be content with all the things that are going on is to walk in the Spirit. Um, 
And Enoch is our example of walking in the Spirit, and that's what he did for 300 years. He lived a life of devotion and action for God. If there's any questions, if you have any, you know, concerns, if you're wondering, you know, are, we rec- are you reconciled to God? Uh, what is walking with God? Uh, if you're anxious about anything, obviously after the service, there'll be our elders, um, to be, you know, myself, to be able to talk to you. So I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we can open your word. And even though your word was written so long ago, Father, it's still true for us and we can apply it. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that we can have fellowship with you, that that's what you really long for, a communion with us, um, not just um, for us to follow certain rules, but you really want to commune with us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be more activated in that area and that activation might lead to action. Lord, we thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.